you can't really understand public policy well if you don't know history. This is very funny because if you walk around the city of Paris, you'll see thousands of water fountains. How many times have you stopped and had water from them? <laughs> Zero since I've been here. Nobody trusts water fountains. The bottled water industry has managed to brand itself as the safe alternative. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti, and in today's episode of the History Watch podcast series, you'll hear me in conversation with Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega, who is a faculty member with the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas in Aquascalientes, Mexico. I was lucky enough to meet Dr. Pacheco Vega in Paris earlier this year while we were both holding the post of invited professor at the Institut des Hautetudes d'Amérique Latine at the Université de Sorbonne Nouvelle. In this podcast, we discuss a number of themes, including the problem of water security, the privatization of water, and the challenges that many countries face as they try to develop systems of governance for water. Dr. Pacheco Vega also discussed why he believes using a historical lens was crucial to his work in public policy and why he has made a point of introducing public policy students to historical methods. In his words, there's no way to properly understand public policy without knowing history. Dr. Pacheco Vega is currently the editor of the Americas for the International Journal of qualitative methods. He's the associate editor of the Journal of Environmental Sciences and Studies, the assistant editor of Policy Design and Practice, and sits on the editorial boards of various other journals. He's also listed among the researchers of the National Council for Science and Technology in Mexico, and is a member of the Evidence and Governance and Politics Network of Researchers and Practitioners. Finally, I'd like to remind listeners that they can find updates about the History Watch project on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by subscribing to our website. You can subscribe to the History Watch podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. And now, tune in to today's podcast, Water Insecurity, Commodifying the Human Right to Clean Water. The article came out 2019 in what journal? It's in the journal Water. It's fascinating and important, this whole business of water. And so you were touching on insecurity, but you dealt with it at the theoretical level. I guess I want to ask you, how is it, as you point out in the article, we can have water, which should be a human right. right? How is this privatized and how is this being bottled and sold to people? This is the core reason why I also came here to France, because France offers two very interesting avenues to understand water privatization. And one of them is through the contracting out of the service, which Paris used to do. So historically, Paris used to have two private entities, the two biggest water privatizers in the world. Paris? Uh, Paris, yes. Okay. So Veolia and Suez environment are the two biggest water privatizers all over the world. So these are companies whose core business is to come to a country to come to a city and say, you are losing money by providing water to your citizens. I am a business, I'm an enterprise. I can find ways for economies of scale and economies of scope, and I can make your core service better mm -hmm. because my main goal is to make money, right? And the problem is, as a citizen, my first point of contact with the government is with the local government. 
all local governments, they have the duty to provide a public service. Of course. So you have local governments that offer garbage collection, that offer parks, that offer funeral homes and cemeteries. So because these are tasked with providing those services, including water, but they have a very weak tax base. When the time comes to divide your budget, you need to decide where should I invest? Should I invest in more gardens, more roads, better transportation, or ensuring that everybody has access to water? And sometimes the only way to allow everybody or enable everybody to have access to water is by giving a private company the license and the contract to provide this water, which is what Paris used to do with Suez and Veolia. But you say, you keep saying used to, so they're not doing that anymore. Not anymore. Why are they not doing that anymore? Because the city decided, the mayor of the city decided to remunicipalize the water supply. Okay, why? The reason why I'm here is because I wanted to investigate this with French scholars. The literature says that because the mayor was convinced that publicness was the main value and the main goal for providing public services. That what was? Publicness. So what... If you provide a public service, it should be provided by a public organization. Okay, okay, of course. And so having publicness as this core driving goal was what actually drove the whole idea of remunicipalizing. However, and this is one of the things that I've learned through my interviews here, this remunicipalization occurred because it provided political power. This was sort of a political negotiation where all the power of the Green Party was thrown behind the mayor's re-election campaign. Mm -hmm. What happened is that the mayor, in turn, remunicipalized water so that they could provide better opportunities for other people who were involved in the negotiation. One way of commodifying water or marketizing water is to privatize. In France, the French model is contracting rather than privatizing. So they don't sell the assets. They just contract out the operation. Meaning I would have a, all the infrastructure for water yeah. and I would say, yeah. you're coming from abroad. You have three years yeah. to manage this for me, but yeah. everything else, everything belongs to me. Absolutely. So you're providing me a service. Exactly. So okay. that is contract. And that model, according to these interviews that I've conducted, that model is better because then you don't need to develop everything from scratch. But mm. what you do need to develop is human capital, which is one of the biggest problems in cities with poor infrastructure. But they also don't have human capital to manage So they don't have governments. experts. They don't have experts. people with the expertise. Exactly. exactly. We're talking about Paris, but I want to talk about this in the context of the developing world. I'm not an expert on water security and water governance by any stretch of the imagination. I've read a few articles in, over the years about the privatization of water in Mexico, I think Bolivia perhaps. Yeah, Bolivia. And the kind of effects these had on people. And it's always international corporations that go in. A lot of people read the English language literature and they say, well, remunicipalization is good, privatization is bad. And I would tend to agree if there were water utilities that had the strength to provide the service 24-7, seven days a week. That's one of the things that I touch upon in my article on water insecurity. The problem is there are many cities that have poor infrastructure. Based on what you just said, it seemed to be saying that we need to be careful about just saying public water governance good, private water governance bad, because I would be in that group saying public water governance good, evil corporations yes. <laughs> go to hell, and you know. <laughs> 
And normally I would be too, right? right? So I. But what I, what is the what is the third option then, or what is? So the third option is what is called in the literature alternative service delivery models (ASD). And what that is is not selling the actual assets of the water utility, but just contracting and contracting in such a way that you ensure that you build human capital so that at some point when the contract finishes, you can return the water to being public. The problem with the developing world is that we have government who will say, okay, private company, multinational corporation, you are operating my water utility. Now I don't have to worry about anything else. So for people who aren't familiar with the problems around private privatization of water. Give us an example. If a co company comes in, an international corporation, and we privatize water, what are the risks to the citizens in the Caribbean and Latin America or elsewhere in the third world? So one of the biggest problems is increasing price. The risk is that when the company comes in, the company may realize that the local government and the public water utility were subsidizing the citizens mm -hmm. and citizens' access to water. Once they do a calculation and they realize that they can't really operate with that amount of money, then they may decide to raise the price. Out of the reach of people's daily... Exactly. Beyond affordability. So this is a risk and this is a real risk. Where was it? I remember reading somewhere, again in Latin America, about privatization of water. And then they made it illegal for people to capture rainwater. That must have been Bolivia. Bolivia? Well, it's illegal to capture rainwater in Colorado, in the United States. Because of that doctrine. They, they have a very different doctrine, but... They have the doctrine that if you capture water, you're stealing water from the ecosystem. Which is absurd, because it's one. it would be one of the best solutions for water governance, for example. But is it the water in, in Colorado uh, the is water privatized? Colorado is, no, it's public, but there is a, a legal doctrine that doesn't allow you to... Capture um, rainwater? Capture rainwater, because you're sort of stealing from the owners or, or from the state as well. Just to be clear, when we talk about the term security, how is it defined or how should people think about the term security or insecurity? Food security, water security? So security is associated with two major things. One is with quantity. So do you have access to enough water of the right quality as well? And also on perception. So a lot of people have access to water. A lot of people are afraid of drinking water from the tap, so they keep buying bottled water. Mm. So it's not only knowing that you have access to water and that the quality is good, but also what your perception is. Consumption of bottled water in Paris and in France has increased up to 600% in the last 10 years. How much? 600%. Wow. And how has the bottled water industry managed to convince people in a global north context to distrust their water? You know, it really depends on the imaginaries that they have, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of people don't document those imaginaries. And that's the reason why I wanted to come to Paris. But it's more than just French people. Huh? That I think it was your article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said bot bottled water industry is in the billions. Like in the billions. It's 2.3 billion yeah, or 210 something. 210 billions. Why? This defies... Okay, I'm not an economist, but I do remember them talking about demand and supply and then rational, rational. choices. Yeah. So why are we paying 
cold water. In the case of water delivery, so household level, you pay for the extraction that and the delivery to your house. But we've been using bottled water. When is the bottled water industry begin? Like it depends. I've done a historiography of bottled water, and if you remember John Snow, the discoverer of cholera, he demonstrated that lack of sanitation and and lack of water treatment was what led mm -hmm. to morbidity and morbidity as well. So people started to die in London in the UK. Towards the beginning of the 1900s, what we started witnessing was a move towards strengthening water treatment systems for public delivery. Water utilities and local governments really investing on treating water so that they could provide water for everyone. So mm -hmm. the bottled water industry started to decline. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the maintenance of water system has begun in a neoliberal context. So in a neoliberal economic model, what you see is that there's a lot less investment by government in their own infrastructure because mm -hmm. they want to have a very lean mm -hmm. government. That kind of neoliberal also has weakened urban water delivery. So who else can provide water that can be treated? Well, you need to pay for it. And the only the, the way bottled water companies convince you to pay is if you drink my water, you will not risk drinking water from, you know, who knows if Paris will provide you with drinking water that is appropriate. This is very funny because if you walk around the city of Paris, you'll see thousands of water fountains. How many times have you stopped and had water from them? <laughs> Zero since I've been here. Nobody trusts water fountains. The bottled water industry has managed to brand itself as the safe alternative. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they have capitalized not only on their branding, but also on poor infrastructure and, as I say in my article, on weak regulatory regimes. Bottled water is very, very rarely regulated. And the only thing that they regulate is you should have a label telling me what kind of minerals do you have and, you know... The yeah. origin and so, so on. So, to try and reiterate what you're saying, bottled water is not regulated, but they've managed to convince through strong marketing campaigns, yeah. perhaps, that we need to be concerned about quality control with water that yeah. is provided through government infrastructure. Absolutely. When they themselves have no sort of regulations. That's uh, genius. Very, it's absolutely <laughs> genius. must know about the situation just by example nestle yes right okay so they have been they've been taking water you know paying next to nothing for water they've where is it um, wealth and and in ontario we have indigenous communities that are being have no access to water and they're a hop skip and a jump away from natural water sources they do not have water nestle is taking water at, i think i read something like 500 per how many million liters or something yeah, yeah. yeah. basically free yeah. And then they're bottling that, selling that like, to the public. Yeah. And then there are people that are right next to these water sources in Canada. Yeah. Um, Mexico as well. Yeah. This is another obscene... It's absurd. Yes. And it's absurd. But I'm not an expert in corruption. But yeah. when people ask me, if I wanted to study corruption in the water sector, where would I find it? And I would say, well, you know, licensing of bottling plants. Because bottling plants have access to water. The selling point for those companies it's usually jobs 
That's how they sell themselves. You know, there's a new bottling plant in Mexico that has basically made no ripples mm. in the water sector in Mexico, in the, in the activist water sector. It's called Niagara Bottling. And they're literally landing Koshi because they have been welcomed by the state government, welcomed by the federal government in Mexico. They will continue to extract thousands of liters for free and bottling it and selling it because they're going to provide, I don't know, 50, 100, jobs but i mean okay so this argument about jobs comes up all the time when we have international corporations going into the global south be it hotels be it restaurant chains be it you know mcdonald's kfc whatever it is this is always their pitch we will provide jobs what's wrong with that argument oh so what's wrong with that argument yeah. is that in providing jobs you are basically putting in the scale you know jobs on the one hand access to water on the other hand how well firstly how well paid are these people that's number one not very right and then number two my understanding is it's more than just jobs to stimulate an economy mm -hmm. you have to reinvest the profits mm -hmm. have to stay within Absolutely. national and these borders are, and that and these kind are of multinationals thing. so they're extracting rents out of the national borders yes right and governments allow them to do so i mean that's something i've interviewed government people and they say well but they're very good corporate social citizens because for example coca-cola look at all the programs to reduce obesity and to protect water sources and i'm like you're telling me that you believe in coca-cola's programs to protect water sources when coca-cola is extracting water from chiapas where people need to buy coca-colas so that they can hydrate themselves but you know governments buy it Do the governments really buy it or is it a publicity stunt? You know, the level of investment in lobbying and the level of investment in marketing that these companies make is insane. It's in the millions of dollars, yeah. really. And it's amazing because it works. There are water activists, but a lot of water activists are focused on one component of water. So, what you know, protecting water, fresh water for uh, crops and agriculture or... Protecting the human right to water and anti-privatization campaigns. But, for example, against bottled water, you'll see very little mobilization. Although, in the province of Ontario, in Canada, there has been a very strong movement against bottling plants in the city of Guelph. Mm -hmm. So much so that the city of Guelph decided to side with the citizens and then deny renewal of permits to Nestle. So when you think about the global governance system, you have citizens, you have markets, and then you have the government. Mm -hmm. And if the markets fail, the government comes in. But if the government fails, citizens need to step up. People need to be educated to engage with public affairs and with mm. social affairs mm. and what the role is i mean a lot of people buy bottled water and i've told them i've said what if all the money you spend on bottled water every year you gave it to your local water utility and they do the math and they're like wow i hadn't thought about it and i'm mm -hmm. like well nobody thinks about it i mean yeah nobody thinks about the role of the citizen in engaging in better governance and better yeah. public policy In my mind, I see a shop, and this may be a very inaccurate perception, but I see a shop difference in the levels of water insecurity between the global north and the global south. Is that true? I think the answer is depends, because mm -hmm. you will see areas where water insecurity in the global north is extreme. So, for example, Flint, Michigan, in the United States, you know... Indigenous, indigenous populations. populations in throughout, Canada. yeah, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even count the number of water advisories that 
that the Muskiam nation and all of the nations in BC and in British Columbia have been facing. And, you know, Vancouver is supposed to be the most amazing city in the world. And there we go. There's mm-hmm. water insecurity there. But if we take it back again to the, the global south, are we still dealing with some of the legacies of colonialism in the way water is managed or the infrastructure? Absolutely, absolutely. Because there's, there's this assumption that the model that worked in the global north will work in the global south. That's not always the case, particularly because they have different cultures, different political systems. And I think we've forgotten how to think about water in the right way, in the sense that we forget that water governance is very colonial. It comes from countries from the north. So I am trying to contribute to the discussion from a viewpoint of a scholar from the south, based in the south, and, and trying to bring the different approaches to governing water and the realities of the developing world in the global south. You and I have had a couple of discussions about being historically informed and taking historical approaches to these large contemporary issues. In what ways do you find value in using a historical lens? I would not be able to understand how French people govern water if I didn't take a historical lens, if I didn't go into the archives and understand how an industry that doesn't really make social sense, because you're commodifying and bubbling a human right, makes economic sense. Mm -hmm. And I teach my students how to analyze public policy problems using a historical end. So I asked one of my colleagues, Dr. Michael Bess, to come and teach my students to do you know, primary research. So we go to the archives in Aguascalientes and Mm -hmm. I tell them, this is a contemporary issue. How did it get so bad that we now need to design a public policy to solve it? I teach them how to trace it all the way back to when this was not even a public policy issue, which is amazing for my students because then they say, I did not realize history had a value. And I said, well, the discipline of public policy uses political science, sociology, economics, anthropology, and history. Good scholars of public policy do that. Yes. But, but there are people who, who don't. I'm sure you've met colleagues. Yes. Yeah, and have no interest. And for example, I have mentored history students in their undergrad and grad thesis. So, for example, I have one student who is looking at the history of water insecurity in Aguascalientes. When, throughout the years, have people started to complain that they have no access to water and mm-hmm. that they're water insecure? Mm-hmm. And I started looking at this because I thought, well, I'm sure that even though water insecurity is sort of a term that we've used right now in 2019... I'm sure in 1987, people felt unsafe or insecure. Oh, maybe 1887. I mean, the terminology, water insecurity, is new, but this is not a new problem. This has been a problem, you know. Exactly. So the trick in using historiographical techniques is trying to discern how the language has changed. Even though the problem may have been the same. Exactly. Of course, you talked about having students look at a particular policy problem and then going to the archives and doing research from the moment that it was not even a policy problem. So it became a policy problem at a particular moment. But in what ways does that knowledge contribute to developing better policy? So they look at the history, but also they look at the history, political system, the history of the governance systems. And 
the political context in different time periods changes. Mm. And because of that, you know, you can see where a solution could be more easily implemented under a type of government than another type of government. So mm. that is information that helps them mm-hmm. decide, right? So, for example, if a problem was developed in just in the last 10 years, they can trace back all the way to the last 10 years of newspaper sources and archival sources and so on and see at what point the changing government also Im- impacted that particular policy problem. So I see what you're saying. So you're looking at the intersection of governance and whatever the issue is at hand. And you're making a relationship between these two. With a historical lens. With a historical lens over time. So you're doing this over time, obviously, yes. You can't really understand how this works if you don't think historically. History is really what allows me to understand a problem more fully. History and geography. Yeah. Because those are the two dimensions that all problems will have. All problems will occur in a particular geographical context. Space, space, space and time. And time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I suppose I should have known this, but it, it's nice to hear you articulate it so plainly, is that the importance of recognizing how changing governance affects policy on either create public policy problems or solutions or solutions yeah. and so we need to in order to understand these larger social issues be it water security food insecurity or what have you we need to also understand what was at play at the governance level It's hard to teach people who are not historians the value of history, particularly because I myself am not a historian. So I use a book called Writing History. Can't recall the name of the editor. Stefan Berger, Pico Feldner, and Kevin Parker. Well, I'll just... So if you want to teach someone who is not a historian to understand historiography and the value of historical methods, you need that book. Using writing history as a non-historian really empowers me to train my students. And I'm going to have to plug my institution and our program. We just got approval from the Senate to teach a PhD in applied history. So this is led by the Department of History Mm -hmm. in my institution. The way they're doing it is trying to teach historians how to harness they're powerful tools. So all of this is also very well correlated with two of my good friends, Juliet Levy from University of California, Riverside, and Mike Best from CIDE. They have developed a project in the lab to do historical spatial analysis. They have analyzed the city where I live in normally, Aguascalientes, and now they won a really large grant to establish this lab to develop historical approaches to understanding urban regional growth and Mm -hmm. things like that. To me, I'm very excited, and the PhD program has invited me to teach a class on historical policy analysis. This is how you do policy analysis, but using historiographical techniques. Oh, this is wonderful. That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast, Water Insecurity, Commodifying the Human Right to Clean Water, in which I was in conversation with Dr. Raul Pacheco Vega from Mexico. For links and references related to today's episode, please see the podcast notes. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.